0: This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.
1: Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture. From movies on the big screen to whatever it is you're streaming, I am your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the studio is the wonderful Lisa Kovacevic. Welcome back, Lisa. I feel like we haven't had you on radio for a little while now.
0: No, we've sort of tag-teamed and done stints on our solo. <laughs> we have,
1: but we're together at last. Yes, we're
0: back. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely to be back in the studio with you, Flick. It's really nice. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, my pleasure. And on tonight's show, we're we're spotlighting kids' films and TV shows, which is a topic we've talked about doing for ages. Mm. I'm so glad it's finally come together. Um, We're going to be chatting with the artistic director, Thomas Caldwell, about the Children's International Film Festival, or CHIF, which kicked off this weekend. Then we'll hear from Swinburne academic, uh, Associate Professor Liam Burke, about some exciting new research into Aussie kids' shows and what parents want. Um, And we'll round up the hour with our review of one of the most popular Aussie kids' shows around, Bluey. (laughs) (laughs) So CHIF, or the Children's International Film Festival, kicked off in Melbourne this weekend. The festival is running until the 13th of June in both Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, Here in Melbourne, the screenings are happening at Classic, Lido and Cameo cinemas. This is the fourth year of the festival and it's featuring 21 kid-friendly flicks and TV series, plus there's a whole bunch of hands-on events. And we are joined now in the studio by the Artistic Director of Chief, Mr Thomas Caldwell. Welcome to Primal Screen,
0: Thomas.
2: Hello, thank you for having me. It's good to have your
0: dulcet tones back on the air, because Thomas, you were the original host of this time slot with um, Plato's Cave for many, many years, and this is why we're here today, because of you, really.
2: Oh, well, look, I'm I'm thrilled that you have me back. I'm not old news already, but I'm... (laughs) Never. (laughs) I feel like we keep leaning
0: on you. (laughs) Can you come back?
2: (laughs) No, I love coming on. I wish I could do it more, and it was lovely talking to you early in the year when we were looking at the Europa Europa Film Festival, so... um, Real sort of change of pace now with this one, yeah. so, yeah.
0: What's the, what's the origins of this one, Thomas? Because this is the fourth instalment, isn't it?
2: Uh, yes. So it's my second, yep. but it's the fourth instalment. Mm. So it, it's run by um, uh, uh, Moving Story, who who own the classic and the leader and the cameo, and, and I suppose their big major flagship film festival is the, the, the Jewish International Film Festival. So this was an, an initiative they began in... Um, was it two thousand and eighteen? No, it was two thousand and seventeen because we, we we skipped a year mm-hmm. um, sort of identifying the fact that there was no Festivals or major film events directly for kids.
0: And is that true worldwide? Is there there no others like Oh, there's
2: some tremendous stuff worldwide. Oh, is there? Yeah, yeah, which is what what we looked at actually for a lot of the films that we source for this. So there's a lot of really good festivals in um, mainly America and mainly uh, pockets of Europe Mm. Um, and elsewhere as well actually. Um, But the big ones, uh, yeah, there's one in Chicago, one in New York. There's a big one in Amsterdam and there's a big one in Mm Gaffourney in in Italy. Uh, They're probably the, the major ones. Um, but yes, not really in Australia. I mean, a lot of the, the bigger film festivals will do programming, maybe one or two for families, and they will have a program for, you know, that's YA teenage young people. In fact, I used to do that when I worked at an, a, another festival, mm-hmm. program for for school groups. But yeah, there's not much for, for, for kids, and we and, and the, the people who put together you know this festival wanted to, to tap into that audience group. And so when they asked me a few years ago to sort of take over as artistic director for the third edition, I was extremely enthusiastic about doing that.
0: Because you've got a young child yourself, does that help inform some of your selections?
2: Oh my god, it does. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I said yes because I had done a lot of children's programming already. Um, and I've sort of got a background in educational writing on film as well. It's sort of doing um, resources for secondary schools, and you know, I speak, I've spoken to teenagers about studying film as text. But yes, then I started also looking at doing films for younger audience groups and families. But having my own um, my own child, it was. One it was great because I could, could sort of road test some of the mm. films on him, sit mm. down and watch stuff with him. Although over the years he's actually become quite sensitive about what he, he, he will and will not watch, so I've actually had to be—I've actually had to tread quite carefully. And in that sense, it's been really helpful because part of what we do with this festival is give age recommendations and uh, content advice. So sort of through watching his evolution over the years, I've sort of developed a really great sense of. What isn't isn't appropriate for different age groups mm-hmm. to sort of get a gauge on on what because we want people to go to these films with their kids and feel safe. Mm. We don't want them to feel traumatised. Like we, we're all probably of that generation. We're going to see films that were aimed at families and kids means that we were regularly traumatised. That's so saying. true.
0: <laughs> it's really it's interesting you say it because I've gone back recently and tried to. Show films to my children that I loved as a kid. Thinking, oh, they're going to love it's The Dark Crystal. They love this, and it's a horror show.
2: I mean, it's oh, like, my, oh god. my god! Yeah,
0: <laughs> or even like the Goonies. There's all like all these like, se- this problematic like sexual content in there that I just wasn't aware of as yep. a kid, but was put into my brain and sort of shaped who I am in a way. And, and it's
2: it's not just the traumatic stuff. Whether it's you know horses drowning and never ending story <laughs> oh, or, or ET dying yep. slowly and you know it's... Spoilers, spoilers. But yeah, there's yep. also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're right. You look at some of those old med- old old TV shows and films that we are quite nostalgic about, and of yeah. course we are. What I often find so shocking is how extraordinarily uh, racist some of them can be, sexist, and just the chauvinism yeah. and the, uh, you know the, the, what they call the Smurfette syndrome. That's the, right. You know, there's there's only one female, one, one pretty girl, one, one pretty girl <laughs> character, and that's how she's defined. Yes. There's the wacky kid, the scientist kid. Then you might have an ethnic kid. Then you have the girl, and yep. that is such a staple of so much children's entertainment. Particularly and
0: it's, from the 80s when we sort of grew yep. up, 80s, 90s stuff, isn't it? Yeah.
2: And kids now call it out. I mean... Yeah, it's
0: wonderful. Kids
2: are so savvy. That, yeah. That that I'm so impressed with, you know, the, the public school system. is doing wonders with making kids aware of this sort of thing. And, and they won't tolerate it either, which is glorious to see. I love it when my son... Calls you know calls out certain shows <laughs> That's and says really yeah.
0: Good. Now with your this program, um, there was a couple of things that really stood out to me. Um, one of them is the Mummans film, or is it a, or is it a, <laughs> a, a series of films or episodes? What is? Can you explain so, what I'm that is? I'm giggling maniacally. Yeah. I
2: adore these <laughs> these two programs. Yeah, so, because
0: can you tell cause to the uninitiated, what and who are the Mummans and what's the history of of, the, of that? Yeah, so um, the
2: Mummans are a classic um, uh, book series that. Um,
0: from oh, Finland? Yes.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Good yeah. save, Lisa. Thank mm. you. I appreciate that. I went blank. Um, yeah. So the books have been around for, for decades, and they're really beloved. Kind of, sort of in that kind of soft fantasy realm, I guess. So somewhere between maybe, uh, I want to say the Smurfs, but that's a bit too materialistic. But that that kind of slightly quirky creatures, Wizard of Oz type type yeah. realm. And they're really lovely, sort of whimsical morality tales that are also quite, um, they're like they're the quite smart and they have integrity. Yeah, Wombles is a cute analogy. Yeah. I like yeah. that, yeah. yeah. Um, and they've been adapted into TV shows and films before. What this is, Moomin Valley, is an, English, an English-Finnish co-production. and um, So they're a TV series. And the first year I came on board as artistic director, the very first season had just started playing in Europe and so we put together a package of three episodes from season one. And I thought, fantastic, that's great, this will be all over Australian TV, I'll never get to do this again. And I'm bewildered that this show has not been picked up in Australia. I mean, you can maybe, if you want, it, you can import the Blu-rays from overseas, I'm probably going to do that eventually, but um, but now a few years later, seasons two and three have since come out. Season three is actually playing in Europe right now. So, I basically pressed repeat. I've put together a package of episodes from series two, that's screening as part of this festival, and then a package of episodes from season three. And they're all quite self-contained. I, I, you know, I carefully tried to pick three episodes that sort uh-huh. of play together as a mini-narrative so yes. you can watch them without the context of the rest of the season.
0: There's something about the um, illustration of those animations that has always really appealed to me. I've only ever seen it on bookshelves or in advertisements that I've always been so intrigued by. And I've not I've never seen it and now I know why because I was like, why has this never crossed my path on the screen and this is why because we've never really had it in this country. And
1: actually that speaks as well to the importance of what festivals, festivals do, do which is actually to bring bring out this material that we don't have access
0: to exactly
2: no i'm glad you said that because that was a big part of what we're trying to do here as well that you know amazing children's television and film is made all over the world and we get a fraction of it here and we mainly get stuff from America, America, England, Australia, which, of course, is great. Mm. Some Canadian, some Japanese, that's then dubbed. Mm. But there are so many countries in Europe that have these amazing industries pumping out um, children's entertainment. Uh, and South America as well. And, you know, sort of some of the Scandinavian countries and pockets of South America feature really prominently in this festival because they're doing great, wonderful stuff that you just wouldn't get a chance to see otherwise.
0: There's, um, you've got quite a broad um, selection of animated films and one thing I noticed when watching um, some of the trailers for them is that a lot of them are dubbed and they're from mm-hmm. all over, across the globe. And I know I have some purist friends that are always like, oh, why did they dub this? And I'm thinking – but I've always – my attitude with animation has always been it's a dubbed medium, so mm. you've got a, a, a painted, illustrated scene, and you're dubbing voices over. It doesn't matter what um, language it is for me, because if it takes away from you experiencing the visuals. Of the film that these people, these artists have spent so much time pouring all their creativity into. I always find it a shame if I'm having to look at the subtitles. But I don't know, is that wrong? What, what was your thinking behind um, having uh, these dubbed versions of, say, an Italian, that Italian film about rubbish or trash? It looked really wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but um, it's dubbed, isn't I
2: used it? to be a purist and I hated dubbing, but yeah. I also grew up when dubbing was terrible. It wasn't something that was treated with a lot of respect. And, you know, the the joke was often, you know, there was that long-standing joke in popular culture about kung fu films always had ridiculous dubbing. And it's because the people who did it didn't care. It was just about pumping out product. I think dubbing has become more sophisticated. I do agree that with animation, I think it tends to to work, especially now. I mean, it's interesting. I've watched, um, again, through my son... um, We've watched some of the... Um, Miyazaki's? Uh, the Miyazaki's, and, yeah. things like My Neighbour Totoro yes. and Kiki's Delivery Service.
0: Spirited Away, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, which is probably for older kids. Mm. But, but things like oh, Totoro yeah. and, and Kiki are brilliant for all ages. Um, really soothing, gentle stories. And I've seen now the English language dubs of those and they're fantastic. They're professional actors who really do justice to the material. So I think that works. Um, when you're putting together a, a festival that... Is a commercial package for children. I think the dubbing was kind of essential. I mean, we, if we want, we've got films in here that we're suggesting are appropriate for kids as young as three. So where possible, we have tried to get films that are no dialogue in English or English dubbed mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I'm not too sure what age really kids can um, really grapple with watching an entire film with subtitles. Maybe maybe eight or nine for your more advanced readers, but um. You know, we want to make this as enjoyable as possible for children. There are a few films in here which are in their original language, which are, um, uh, you know, subtitled only. And I, and I really hope that kids who do speak those languages from various communities in, in Melbourne and Sydney go along to see the films and some older kids will give it a go. But we, yeah, a real... It, it, it's, it's weird. Programming and criticism, there is some overlap, but when when, when I do work as a programmer, the, the, the mindset really is what is going to get people on mass, in to see these films and to enjoy them, to to the best, you know, in the best possible chance to enjoy them.
0: Yeah, because it's about audience engagement at the end of the day. And I, mm. I, I wonder what the other challenges are for you in terms of getting people out of their homes, out of their sort of at-home cinema experiences, they're at outside of their streaming services, to get. how do you get them out, out of the home now? In, what's the challenge for you? How do you do, overcome those challenges?
2: Well, it's a challenge I think a lot of cinemas and festivals are facing mm. and it's creating that sense of event and, a, and occasion. So, I mean, a lot of these screenings have sort of additional activities, which I, I can take zero claim for. It's been done by the rest of the team. But there's some really fun activities happening in conjunction with the films, whether it's dressing up or face painting and, Um, You know, as a small example. Um, But like I said before, these are films you won't get to see otherwise. Mm. Like there's a lot of stuff here that people used to assume that if it's in a festival, it will pop up on a streaming service at some point or, you know, go on SBS one night. A lot of these films won't. They will probably vanish without a trace in Australia. So this is your one chance to see them. And we are trying to deliver that cinema experience. Um, I don't know about you, but you know, after all this time and we didn't go back to the cinema. It was quite overwhelming mm. when I. I mean, I think the first time I went back was to see the new James Bond film, and I'm not much of a Bond fan. I'm sort of indifferent, but just that experience of seeing a big spectacle, I got quite emotional. emotional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we want families to have that. Um, yeah. You know, I took my son to the cinema during the last school holidays for the first time, and I don't know how long. And again, I was I was actually really quite. Moved by just how much he was enjoying that all encompassing nature of cinema. So yeah, we want to do that for families and kids. I
0: think it still maintains a sense of magic for the child going into a movie theater when the yep. you know the lights go down and the curtain. Well, it used to be that the curtain was yeah. revealed, and I yeah. Some still do that. Some still do that, yeah. and I um yeah. I think there is still that uh, the sense of um, ritual as well. Going yeah. going out before, getting a treat after, all that sort of stuff that's attached to going to the and cinema with children is really special. Yeah,
1: and you're likely creating a generation of children who have that love for cinema. That's how I got into it. Mm-hmm. And it's through that ritual. Exactly. It wasn't every week, but yeah.
2: yeah. And that strange kind of social interaction you get in a cinema where you are sitting there doing your own thing, but there are some genres which you've got to try to see with an audience. And yeah. I would say it's comedies. Uh, horror and action yep. you know, I, I'll tell you what, seeing Top Gun Maverick with an audience was absolutely <laughs> gorgeous and wild but but the other category is kids films yep. I, a lot of critics I know get a bit sniffy about going to these screenings where kids are invited along and I'm like this is the way to gauge how the film works mm. and when, when a film wins over a cinema full of restless kids you know something magic has happened. I, I love that hearing a bunch of kids laughing their heads off at a throwaway fart joke <laughs> is one of my favourite things ever
0: There's <laughs> a Another film you've got programmed called The Three Wishes for Cinderella. It seems to me that there's just no end to the appeal of this very... Ancient story of Cinderella it dates back to ancient Greece, and there's been so many iterations Does it go in back the, to ancient ancient Greece? ancient Greece. Yeah, There was, I, think, I forget what the name
2: of it was thought called. It was based in China.
0: Well, no, there's a China. There's a Chinese version. There's yeah. also a French version, um, and there's several throughout Europe. But that speaks to Joseph Campbell's theory of collective consciousness, oh, yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? So, <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, I just find it interesting that it's just. It's just never-endingly appealing to people to, to keep recreating this story. I mean, Disney's done several versions. There was a version out on um, Netflix maybe, I think, that was a musical last year. Mm. What is it about this one, Three Wishes for Cinderella? What's, what's, it's, what is unique about this version? Well,
2: this, one, this one's actually a remake itself. It's, it's a remake of a classic 70s film from the Czech Republic, I think. Yeah. So, again, if you lived in Europe, you'd know all about the film this was based on and you, you'd know the fact that the lead actor... Played the Cinderella character is this norwegian pop star and right <laughs> right yeah it 's extraordinary reading about these films that you just don 't hear about in Australia and all the, the kind of cultural interest and pop culture references in them but um look it 's i know it 's a cliche to talk about revisionist storytelling these days because I mean w- what isn 't um, but it's sort of, yeah, it's a nice, updated, revisionist version of the, the fairy tale where the Cinderella character has just a lot more agency. She's, it's way more enjoyable watching her sort of taking charge of the scene, um, not in that kind of trite boss girl way either, just by being a sort of lovely, fascinating, active character. And, look, it looked gorgeous. I mean, I yeah. just, it just looks so the, – the, the whole costume design and production design, I thought this would be – again, kids will have a an understanding of the story – and I sort of want them to come to the cinema and then just like, see that kind of grand opulence and mm. that sort of gorgeous design and be overwhelmed by how beautiful this story looked. And it's just a nice, gentle variation on um, a story that can be quite brutal in some of the tellings.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Um, it's, yeah, it looks visually stunning. It also looks like it has like, some sort of element of realism about it that maybe other versions don't, Even aside from this sort of grandeur and opulence of it. It has this sort of authenticity to it that really sort of struck Uh, stood out at me I suppose.
2: No that's really well observed. Mm. It it does sort of have a sort of kind of, I don't want to say realistic, but it sort of does have a more recognisable foundation, you know, the, the sort of depiction of the sort of the, the peasant life. And That's then when, you know, is, they yeah. do go to the big dance and they do go to, you know, the the, the costumes are made to be worn to the ball. That's it's what it is. It's got contrast. a
0: historical realism to it or something. I don't know. Yeah. but It just looks quite unique in that way, which, which really appealed to me. There's another um, film there that I'm thinking, my, I might be able to take both my two-year-old and my nine-year-old too, can you help me? Because mm-hmm. the two-year-old is obsessed with the How to Train Your Dragon movies, which are quite sort of violent in a lot of ways.
2: But Yeah, they're a they're, bit they're tough actually they're for tough. sensitive kids. Yeah, yeah, well,
0: mine clearly isn't. He's obsessed. We have to watch it every morning. I'm just <laughs> like, oh, my God, he's got a problem. And my daughter is obsessed with this series of children's books called Wings of Fire, which all are about dragons, and it's going to be made into a TV series, I believe, by um, Ava DuVerno. What's her name? Ava, Ava DuVerno. Oh, Ava DuVerno, yeah. Thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah, Ava DeVerno, Hang on, yeah. I, I, my son's a big dragon fan oh, Really, <laughs>
0: you got to write that down. I'll give There's you some a good notes, yeah. "How
2: to Train Your Dragon" spin-off series for younger viewers on Netflix. He's watched that. He's, 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 yeah, yeah, he's, he's all over it. it. Right, yeah,
0: okay. yeah. But you've got one Sorry, called. So Blake's and
2: I will just yeah. yeah. Dragon to to what our kids are watching now, everyone just.
0: But you've got one in the program called Dragon Girl. Yeah. Is um is that age appropriate for both my two year old and my nine
2: year old? <laughs> I think your nine year old would be fine. It might be. I don't know if your two year old's okay with the how to train your dragon stuff. He might be okay with this. Yeah. We're recommending it as seven plus. Gotcha. That's the other thing though. Our age recommendations. You know, parents are going to know where their yeah. kids sit with those. Yeah. Like you know, I, I know. Yeah, with my son, he's probably a bit more sensitive than most. Um, gee, when he's old enough and he listens back to the way I talk about him on air, he's going to be horrified. Um,
0: talk to your therapist. But um, about a kid. yeah, look,
2: great. It, it's got a lot of sort of nice. Um, uh, it's, it's, there's a nice parable story there in this film about being a refugee, sort of being somebody in a hostile environment where you're you're not wanted, and um, and sort of the amazing power of someone showing you kindness. So. That's the underlying theme in that one, which is very sweet.
0: Oh, that sounds lovely. And Um, it's kids
2: and dragons.
0: I mean, can't go wrong. (laughs) Um, And and just before we wrap up, I just want to ask you about um, probably my favourite pick of the festival, which is a classic, which is The Secret of Nim. Oh, my God. Why did you select that one? Is there a significance to that Mm -hmm. or just that you love it too, Thomas? Yeah,
2: well, I always like the idea of... Finding some good retros- retrospective films And so I th- basically Okay, I'm going to reveal all now I basically looked at What's having its 50th anniversary What's oh. having its 30th And then went Okay, what's having its 40th
0: That's how you program a festival, kids and then, Yeah, exactly <laughs> Just, just, just look
2: for any anniversary Google a Zero on the end yeah. And when I realised The Secret of Nim Is now 40 years old Wow Wow um, and That's hadn't been screened life. in Australia since I don't know when. Um, I just leapt all over it because it was a huge part of my childhood. I think I saw this in prime you know, I saw this me in too. the cinema when I was in primary yeah. school, yeah. And it's a it's a really magical, amazing triumph of a film. Um, and it was one of the first major animated films that wasn't Disney.
0: It was Don Bluth, wasn't it? Don
2: Bluth. Yeah. So it was his first film. He's very much a sort of independent maverick. That's and right. And he made a filmmaker, so he would have heard of The Land Before Time and all, Do- all dogs, dogs go, go to, to heaven. heaven, yep. But this was his first feature film as an independent artist after he left Disney. Um and I still think it's his best. I I can't wait to see that on the big screen. And, yes, I'll be dragging my son along to that for sure.
0: Yeah, mystery really drives that film, which is one of the best elements in a good children's film, I think. Um, So if listeners want to take their young ones or the young at heart want to go, where where do they go, Thomas, to get their tickets and to view the the festival?
2: Go to CHIF, so C-H-I-F-F dot com dot A-U. You can buy tickets and get times there. And, yeah, so in Melbourne at the Lido in Hawthorne, the classic in Elstonwick, and the cameo down there in Belgrave next few weeks
0: and it's also playing in sydney
2: it's in sydney at the at the Ritz. yeah
0: awesome thomas thank you so much for coming on the show tonight thomas caldwell has been speaking to us about the children's international film festival or chif and it runs it's running now isn't it until june 28
1: you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform you are listening to Primal Screen on R with Flick Ford and Lisa Kovacevic. Um, so on tonight's show, in case you're wondering what's happening, we are spotlighting kids films and TV shows. Um, at the start of the show, we spoke with Thomas Caldwell, who is the artistic director of the Children's International Film Festival, or CHIF, which has got to be, I think, the cutest name for a film festival. It does, doesn't it? Rolls off the tongue. (laughs) Um, And that's currently running until I thought the 13th of July, uh, 13th of June. Is that
0: right? I thought it was the 28th. I I heard that then.
1: That's okay. But you can head to chif.com.au or you can check out the program um, online and book your tickets as well. Um, But what I'm really, uh, I'm excited about tonight. I feel like there was so many, it's so rare that we get to spotlight kids TV and film. So uh, there was quite a lot to go through. And we actually have another interview. And this was one that um, I did the other day. Um, So new research has shed light on on how Australian audiences discover, consume and, and value local children's television content, um, titled Australian Children's Television Cultures or ACTC, there is a research group that is based at Swinburne University and it works in partnership with the Australian Children's Television Foundation This is a research project that has been running over, will be running over the next four years, and the research group investigates why we actually love Aussie made kids' shows, uh, the changes in how we watch them, and the impact these shows have on our family lives and the memories that we build. So I caught up with one of the chief investigators of this research, Associate Professor Liam Burke from Swinburne, to hear about the key findings so far of this exciting new project. Joined now by the Associate Professor and Discipline Leader of Cinema and Screen Studies at Swinburne University, Associate Professor Liam Burke. Welcome to Primal Screen, Liam. Thank you for having me. You're involved with some very exciting research to do with Australian children's television. Before we get into that project, can you tell me a bit about your own research?
3: Yeah, so I am a screen studies researcher at Swinburne. Uh, My main research areas over the past few years have been adaptations comic book adaptations and superhero movies so a couple of years ago i had a large project called superheroes and me with the australian center for the movie image we did a major exhibition on clever man that was the indigenous australian superhero show we also created a VR experience called superheroes and realities collide in which downtown melbourne became a comic book fight and we made a documentary film as well called superheroes and me which was you came from more than 100 fan interviews where people talk about why superheroes are important to them. And that will screen after two years of delay next month at, at the San Diego Con.
1: I'm actually very familiar with Symposium. I got to present on Cleverman and Indigenous identity and temporalities. That was a fantastic collection, and but quite different from what you're working on now. So let's dig into the research project that you're currently in the process of, or is it all wrapped up? Oh, we've
3: just started. It's a four-year project called Australian Children's Television Cultures. I'm one of four chief investigators uh, across Swinburne and RMIT, and we are working with and supported by the ACTF. If you don't know the ACTF, they're the Australian Children's Television Foundation. They are the production and policy hub behind such iconic... Australian children's TV as Round the Twist, Dance Academy, more recently shows like Hardball or Little Lunch. And so the goal of the four-year project is really to understand in this era of massive streaming opportunities and transnational screen traffic and changing uh, regulations, what is the role and responsibility of... Uh, local children's television, uh, you know, from from a variety of perspectives.
1: I'd really be interested to hear about the history of Australian children's television because I know that during the 80s there was a a real focus on using television as an educational tool and we saw, here's an American example, but Sesame Street, I suppose an Australian example would be Liftoff. They were thinking a lot more about the psychological and educational aspects of the show and I remember them saying that the main character of Liftoff, who is this faceless doll that was done so that children could project their own identity onto the character.
3: Well, the character you're referring to is EC. That's it. So EC it? Yeah. regularly turns up on social media because it's it's kind of a creepy looking doll. It's creepy. Doll. Yeah, I grew so, up in the 80s
1: it, and was very creeped out by EC. But I also love Liftoff, so mixed emotions. Yeah.
3: And EC stands for every child. And it was, as you rightly point out, a character who any child you know, from any background could see themselves into and reflect their experiences on. I mean, the ACTF who we work with, they are entering their 40th year this year. So 2022 is their 40th anniversary. And they have been producing local kids' TV, not necessarily always with an educational focus. And that's one of the things we found in our research. Where Australian children's television is particularly strong is while it has an educational component, and that that's something that audiences and parents place a value on it's not in that kind of didactic classroom setting it's not necessarily learn your numbers learn your 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 letters it's more about life skills and particularly in an australian context and things that are important here so like water and sun safety thinking about local culture politics and geography which you are not going to get from a Peppa Pig. Patrol or even something as well-meaning as Sesame Street.
1: That surprises me with that there is a bit more focus on making it entertaining especially for parents that's definitely good news they end up watching quite a lot of, of kids shows and it can get quite repetitive and especially if you don't like it. We've also seen that in the cinema space with um, lots of adults enjoying going to kids movies unaccompanied by children. What are some of the other key findings that you've had in this research?
3: So uh, just to kind of briefly set up the research uh, one of the first phases of the re- research was a major nationwide survey followed by semi-structured interviews with parents. We really wanted to understand how audiences, particularly parents, Find value and consume uh, kids' TV when you have so many options. And so, amongst those key findings, kind of, were the television is still number one. So it's still the number one device in the home. It's ninety four percent. It far outstrips even the kind of the, you know the closest would be tablets, which would be about fifty seven percent. But the top ten channels on the, that television were uniformly streaming services. Really? So those, but those include streaming services affiliated with the main broadcasters. So it's all the ABC's associated services. iView was mentioned, you know, was had 65% of the audience share for instance, or not the share, but was mentioned uh, 65% of the time. Uh, and then the other kind of, you know, likely candidates, Netflix, YouTube, Disney Plus. I mean, what was interesting was streaming services that didn't have clearly demarcated children's sections like Prime Video, like Apple TV Plus were not nearly Mm. mentioned as regularly as the Disney's, the Netflix's with the Netflix kids, ABC, uh, uh, and so on.
1: That's not that surprising because you'd be, I suppose, if you're leaving children to watch, you don't want any inappropriate material to come up while they're watching something. Do you think the appeal of streaming is also to avoid some of the advertising? I know I was brought up on a diet of ABC and SBS as a child for that exact reason. Do you think that plays into it? Absolutely.
3: We talk to a lot of parents who talk... About one of the things they liked about ABC versus the commercial broadcasters was the lack of advertising. They felt they weren't being sold something, and you know that might translate to you know the the choice you have when dealing with a streaming service, whether that's a catch up service uh, attached to a traditional broadcaster, or more frequently, you know, a subscription video on demand service. That was certainly appealing to some parents.
1: When I was growing up. A lot of the characters on these TV shows were sort of white Australians from the Australian content. A lot of the content I watched was also British or American. We have seen a real boom in Australian content um, and also better representation. We've got fantastic Indigenous TV shows. Is it Little Cuz and...?
3: Little Jane Cuz Yeah, uh, would be one. Talu would be another. Uh, so there is you know, uh, representation. Uh, that was something that parents felt was uh you know, much improved but it was also something that you know they valued so when asked to you rank a range of criteria from how important is it that it's fun to how important is it that the shows are new uh you know diverse representation was uh, amongst the top uh you know, characteristics that parents really prized and there was a sense that Australian tv had really made serious strides over the past few decades uh but while recognizing that there perhaps is always more that could be done yeah, absolutely.
1: As part of this research project, your team conducted extended semi-structured interviews with select survey participants. And these interviews were analysed to gain more nuanced qualitative detail with which to complement the quantitative survey findings. What was the key message that came
3: through in these interviews? One of the things that parents kind of said time and again was, what, how did they conceptualise good Aussie Kids TV? And they tended to point to you know, kind of three key characteristics. Uh, unambiguously Australian setting, so accents recognisable locations, uh, a recognisable or authentic depiction of family dynamics, you know, so all the chaos and fun that might be associated with a family. And then this kind of, what is sometimes described as a larrikin sensibility, kind of an anti-establishment sense of humour that you would not find perhaps in what is often described as overly sanitized international content, particularly US content. And those three characteristics are all very prominent in what was the number one show for younger children, older children, and parents to co-watch with their children. And that was Bluey, the (laughs) phenomenon uh, of of the last few years.
1: Yes, of course. That's so interesting hearing what what we're looking for and the anti-establishment angle is particularly interesting because I think we do see that in Australian cinema and, and kind of being able to see a sense of nationhood on on screen whether that is on the um the iPad that your child is watching the show or in the cinema. You touched upon this change in how families are being represented. Over the last, say, four decades, five decades, something that's become a lot more common is being able to see LGBTQI plus representation on screen, and part of that is having um, perhaps same-sex parents, seeing um, queerness on screen as well, like lots of different variations on the family model. Can you give some examples of where you've seen that and, and how audiences have responded?
3: Yes. You know, so again, parents uh, felt that you know Australian children's television had made strides uh, based on where it was maybe a couple of decades past, but also uh, relative to international examples, you know, shows that could be singled out for depicting, uh, you know, a greater diversity might be a show like Hardball, which is about a a kid from New Zealand who moves with his dad, who's going to play AFL, uh, to you know a. of a a city centre school he's he has an array of friends from all different backgrounds and you know amongst the parents depicted is a same-sex couple so that's a show that's celebrated another show that is celebrated is first day which was the first uh, children's show uh, at the time, and probably still is, to have a trans actor in a lead role. Uh, you could point to other shows like Lil' J Coz, as well as Talu and Red Dirt Riders, which uh, have a very, you know, indigenous perspective that is often sometimes absent, uh, you know, that First Nations perspective around the world. So there was a genuine sense that Australian children's TV was more diverse than it had been in the past, but also perhaps outstripping its international equivalents.
1: Yeah, wow, so interesting. Are there any sort of recommendations you would give to the Australian television industry of, of what we need to see more of and what, what audiences actually want to see?
2: But
3: research like this comes at a crucial time because audiences industry and policymakers are trying to navigate a landscape increasingly dominated by streaming and there is much debate about what responsibility there are on local and international streaming services operating here to fund local content and i think uh what research like this demonstrates is there is an active and enthusiastic audience for uh, local content. So whether you're a local streamer like you know a uh, Stan or a binge or whatever, or an international streamer that's uh, operating here like Netflix or Disney Plus, I think this uh, should give confidence that there is a receptive audience uh, for 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 local uh, content.
1: I think that's really encouraging to hear, particularly during the 80s and 90s. There was a sense of this kind of cultural cringe with Australian content. You know, the 2000s, we saw a huge boom in really quality cinema and also television, which has, you know, taken a little bit longer to come along, but there's actually money going into television now that is comparable to cinema. So that's really nice to hear that Australian content has definitely got a lot of value and there's a lot of interest there for
3: it. Absolutely. And I mean, Australian children's TV is amongst the strongest output on television from Australia you think of shows like Bluey you think of shows like uh, first day hardball these have all won international awards like Emmys so they are not being kind of they're not good for Australian kids tv they're just good kids tv and I think that's uh recognized by their global followings Some of the other key findings included around the habits of audiences. So, for instance, younger uh, audiences still tended to watch streaming services affiliated to the traditional broadcasters, so something like iView or another catch-up service. As they got older, they tended to move more towards YouTube and uh, subscription video on demand services like Netflix and tended to watch a wider array of, of content. So they had a great variety of shows that they loved, versus uh, younger audiences. But the idea that audiences are fragmented uh, and everyone's watching their own shows on their own devices uh, is complicated by the fact that we have still see a place for co-viewing, for parents and their kids, families sitting down together to watch shows together. And what are uh, parent participants that came primarily and perhaps unsurprisingly at the weekends, and that was the kind of key time where the whole family would sit down together to watch, you know, a, a favorite show or put out uh, an old Disney movie.
1: Yeah, I think there's that classic anxiety around new technology and streaming kind of fits into that. And it's interesting how there is that concern that you'd have a more disconnected family um, just because you have access to your own uh, individual shows that you might be interested in. And and also educational content. I think there has in the past been this concern around there being, oh, it's mainly American content and that isn't obviously true. And how people engage with that as well. I personally use a lot of streaming services. Usually the free ones. And something that I really love about it is the fact that you often get referred to other things that are similar and that kind of algorithm, it's often used in a very negative way in terms of discussions around social media and privacy. But the flip side of that is that it is a curating of content and you, you do get exposed to shows that you may not have been across. So I think that's a really positive side of it.
3: Absolutely. I'll regularly find something, you know, when I'm watching. ABC kids with the kids that you know uh, one show would finish and then oh there's another option here that we weren't familiar with or didn't know before so uh, there there are some positives to you know being algorithmically directed curated to uh, you know relevant and appropriate shows.
1: Liam, it's been fantastic talking with you and I'm um, best of luck with, with the project. If uh, listeners are interested in finding out more about this research, where can they head to?
3: They should Google us. Uh, we're the Australian Children's uh, Television Cultures Research Group. We have a website which is all details about the project and it's where we post uh, our project outcomes, including uh, this first report on parents' perspectives on Australian Kids TV in the streaming era.
1: Thank you so much, Liam. um, No problem. Yeah, I might see you at the next film conference.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. Take care. Take care.
0: Well, if that theme music sounds familiar to you, I'd wager you're the parents of small children. Or you, my friend, are very young at heart yourself with excellent taste in children's television because that, of course, is the theme music to Australia's most successful television export of the moment, the children's animated series... Bluey, which you briefly touched on earlier, uh, click in your interview. Um, What was he saying about Bluey?
1: Basically that around uh, adults, kids, everyone agrees that they love it. It's It's very, very
0: popular. Yeah, yeah, it has that wide (laughs) appeal. Um, It's an original Australian animated television series created by Joe... Broome, um, and it was commissioned by ABC and BBC for the ABC and its target demographic is four to six-year-olds but as Flick points out, adults alike will enjoy it. Um, it's just approved, pro- it yeah, it's just, and not just adults and children... But international audiences as well, because even though this is quintessentially Australian, um, I mean, it's got episodes that that focus on sweeping magpies, um, trips to Hammerban, a.k.a. Bunnings. (laughs) I absolutely Um,
1: loved that. The
0: the icon is so obviously (laughs) Bunnings. And I'm
1: going to start calling Bunnings Hammerban now. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so funny. Um, yeah, wheelie bins and just these unmistakable Australian accents. It's set in Queensland, but it's very Australian. It's sort of universally Australian. Um, but it got sold to the US. So Disney picked it up and has now distributed it to a bunch of countries, including South Africa and India and Southeast Asia. And it's equally popular over there as it is in the UK and New Zealand and here. And what um, really surprised me about that flick was that they haven't dubbed it in American accents. They've just kept it as Australian.
1: I, that pleases me to no end because Similar to you, I hate it when they'll just recreate. Well, they American um, creators will just recreate, yes. <laughs> rebrand with with American characters, and it's just it takes away. I think there's something really hilarious. I remember. Um, with Wilfred the dog when that got put into an American um, audience, you know, yeah. got with Elijah Wood and everything. They kept at least Wilfred.
0: Wilfred was an Australian <laughs> yeah. cattle dog, which yeah. is – yeah, that's true actually. I kept him. It is important. Well, it's part of the humour and it's yeah. ours, isn't it, which is sort of nice when we've been consuming so much American content totally. for our entire lives. Um, so, that, yeah, that's a little win for the Australian um, TV show. Uh, I, for listeners that don't know, um, the show follows Bluey, who's a six-year-old blue-heeler pup. Um, characterized by her by her sort of abundant energy, imagination and curiosity about the world. And she lives with her dad Bandit, Mother Chili, and her younger four-year-old sister Bingo. Um, there is a reason that they chose the cattle dog as uh, or the Blue Healer as as the um the the to be the sort of animal anamorphic um hero of, of this series. And that's because well they're quintessentially those dogs are quintessentially Australian, yeah. but also I think it's quite clever because dog breeds allows you to have a, a wealth of characters in this series, so you get Dalmatians and dingoes and um all uh, poodles um all sorts of which which make them really distinguishable from mm. from the main blue healer family and
1: you can't help but map onto a onto these dog breeds a character it's kind of like when you see a dog go past and it looks a bit like its owner we have these. Uh, there's a narrative around those dog
0: breeds. It's so true. Yeah, it's so true. Um, how did you – so you, you watched it for the first time today. Did yeah. You? Yeah, yeah. So
1: I have obviously heard about Bluey. I have many friends who have kids. I'm uh, an auntie to six uh, or three nieces. <laughs> uh, no, four nieces and, yeah. and two nephews. Yeah, I obviously knew about Bluey. I haven't been living under a rock. Um, I loved this. I'm glad that you um, – Lisa gave me the very good advice of starting – she picked out an episode from Series 1, Series 2 and Series 3 so I could see the progression and there is a huge progression. I think they really, by the third series, they really lean into that kind of quite dry humour and that's something that Liam and his research team picked up is that Australian audiences actually want to see Australian-ness and if that's through comedy, if it's through the iconography of the dogs, if it's through calling something snags or hammerbarn, it's through that. But parents and kids want to see that. That's so right. So it's yeah. nice seeing it in practice.
0: It is. Um, and and a lot of that uh, leans on the dad character in this um Oh, he's great. Bandit, who's, yeah. Who's, who's wonderful. Um, and. I think what I really like about this dad character, he won Father of the Year a few years ago. Did you know that?
1: No, is, is, is it the um, is he the lead singer of um, Custard or something? Yeah, did I read of, that? Yeah, he did.
0: Not Custard, it's, um, oh God, I forget which one. No, that's all right. mate, Custard. I can't remember. No, that. it is Custard. Is it? Is yeah. It is Custard. I yeah, beg yeah. your pardon, there you go. You know your <laughs> facts better than me. Um, but what I really like about him is because this series. Um, is as much about the kids and their imaginative play as it is about parenting mm. um, and it's, it's also sort of saying to us that imaginative play is really important for children and their development um, and, and that they do that by having the parents really engage in that imaginative play yeah. and, and so Bandit really and the mother um, also Chile, they, they really encourage the imaginative play and go along with it yeah. even though they want to be like getting back to reading the paper or watching sport or whatever they always will drop everything for their children so that yeah he won father of the year a few years ago and for good reason you know um he is kind of like I don't know. I think that is just, that is tapping into the zeitgeist of what uh, fatherhood looks like today. And Mm. um, dads today are much more engaged than they were, you know, 30 years ago, maybe when you and I were growing up. Like he's just completely present. He's across the washing, he's across the cooking, he's across the kids' school pickup times. um, And he's also engaging in this imaginative play. And the show itself has clearly taken influences from shows like Peppa Pig or Ben Ben and Holly's um, uh, Kingdom. um,
1: Well, the, the creator is the same person who does Charlie and Lola yes. which I have seen a few episodes of that um,
0: which is another wonderful kind of, yeah, yeah, wonderful yeah. children's show I absolutely love that, I adore and, that it's and, Lauren Child yeah. created that one yeah.
1: and that, actually shares a similar, what you were saying about imaginative play, play. It does. very very realistic childhood on screen
0: uh, uh, Absolutely and that one's more about the dynamic between an older brother Charlie and his little sister Lola and him being really gentle and engaging and encouraging and patient with her mm. as the father is here and it's such a relief because in the world of animated fathers, they tend to be half-wits or buffoons, like, you know, your Homer Simpson, even Peppa Pig's dad, um, he's, you know, he's always been teased for having, you know, a fat Tommy, um, you know, his efforts at DIY or barbecuing always end up you know, in a big mess. He's just a little bit hopeless and funny. Isn't daddy funny? (laughs) Whereas, like, I find with Bandit, he's more nuanced. You know, he does get a little bit frustrated with his kids, but then he also um, can sort of lean down and get on their level and play with them. And when he's playing with them, he can be the fall guy. He can be the comical element. Um but you don't he's not a buffoon at yeah. all. then he returns to being dad as the responsible he's, dad at the he's end, a
1: remarkably yeah. for an animated dog he's a remarkably relatable character i love the there's um one episode where he starts it by telling a fairy tale and he, he says once upon a time in a land far away the eighties yeah <laughs> I know. And that's a long time ago. That and
0: that <laughs> episode I chose because that one's sort of specifically for the parents, isn't it that episode? Yeah, it's about 100%. us us relating to growing up in the 80s when we didn't wear bike helmets and <laughs> such um, yeah but I, I I love that, I love that about uh, this sort of refreshing take on on parenthood, and that 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 dads should be sort of valued for the um, more engaged well, the good dads are for yeah. the more engaged parents that, that that they are today, um so yeah, I think it's kind of um. I don't know. Actually, you know what? I actually find it amazing that this show got picked up because it's not a high concept show. It's really just a show. Very simple. It's so simple. So I just can't imagine how they went about pitching it to begin with. And
1: well, there's yeah, there's a bit of panic earlier this year around um, May where there was talk that Bluey may not get continued. Um, and there was such uproar and I don't know if it was because there was basically riots on the street but uh, they had to come out and say no no don't worry there will be another series we're continuing with this. Yeah Um, well which speaks to the yeah.
0: Well it's amazing (laughs) I was watching in lockdown last year um, my daughter was doing a lot of online drawing tutorials and there's a a father and daughter in the US that do their little YouTube videos and teach you how to draw Disney characters and whatever. And one day they said, today we're going to draw our favorite new character and it's bluey. And I was like, what? (laughs) I didn't know that it had had reached American shores then. I mean, that's how popular this thing is. It's really, um, it has universal themes, you know, which is wonderful. And you know what else I like about it? It doesn't, um, it doesn't try to undercut its, uh, I guess sentimentality. Um, there, there's a lovely episode called camping I don't know if I re- recommended that you one did. To yeah, yeah, yeah. so so yep. that, so that one uh, is about and there's something we I feel like think we can all relate to you go camping as a kid and you make friends and then you have this wonderful time with your camping friends and then one day you wake up and they're gone and yeah. it's, it's like that's a heartbreak yeah. you know and they lean into that they yeah. don't they don't <laughs> pull the rug out and make a joke out of it like The no. Simpsons sort of my, you know and I think that's really nice they they really revel in the preciousness of, of childhood um, there's another another episode called Takeaway where um, um, Bandit takes the kids to pick up some Chinese takeaway and one of them needs to go to the toilet and he's (laughs) trying to wee in the bushes and they get the tap stuck and then the takeaway ends up everywhere and he gets frustrated with the kids and then he cracks open like a Chinese fortune cookie and there's some sort of sentimental thing in there about how precious childhood is and how you've really got to appreciate it and it's sort of Makes him take a you know mm. deep breath and and carry on, and I just think beautiful it's yeah. just, it is. It's it's sort of a really well rounded show like yeah. that. Yeah. I'd
1: actually heard um, people talking about that exact episode mm. and saying that they got quite emotional watching it. And for a seven minute TV
0: show, that is remarkable. It is, yeah, uh, yeah. It's constantly on repeat in my house on Saturday mornings <laughs> when, we to, when we want Bandit to parent our kids instead of us. <laughs>
1: Well, if you want Bandit to uh, babysit your kids, Bluey uh, is—it's on ABC, and it's also currently streaming, of course, free on ABC iView.
0: Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version, and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.